Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Today I'm going to share with you a conversation that I recently had with Dr. Tony Woodleaf. Dr. Woodleaf is the author of the new book, I Citizen, a Blueprint for Reclaiming American Self-Governance. That will be released on December 7th of 2021. And Dr. Woodleaf's also the Executive Vice President of the State Policy Network. He's got a PhD in political science from the University of Michigan. His writing appears in lots of different places, the Wall Street Journal, the National Review, and he has won awards for his writing. So we'll link, of course, to all of these things in the show notes so you can check it out more. But what I'm excited about is sharing this conversation with you about Tony's new book, because I think it is a book that will be relevant to our audience, given their interests. And it is a book that takes a look at where we stand today in terms of political polarization, how we got there, and what we can do about it. And this last in particular is something that I hope will appeal to you, that there are very practical tips. As I said, the the subtitle of the book uh, includes the word blueprint. So you can expect from this conversation and from the book to get some practical tips about how you personally, individually can have an impact on the situation and to help improve it. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Tony, thank you so much for being here. I imagine you are probably pretty busy what with your day job, and I imagine also promoting this book that we're talking about. Uh, let's start first, make sure we get this out there, the name of your book. The name of your book is I, Citizen, A Blueprint for Reclaiming American Self-Governance. Uh, and it is going to be released on what day? December 7th, a day that shall live in infamy. <laughs> for so many reasons, right? But people can pre-order the book now, yes? Yes, I'm encouraging everyone to buy early and often. Uh, Absolutely. Perfect holiday gift uh, for your friends or your enemies. I, you know what? I actually was gonna, I was, I would, typically would not do this, but I was going to give you a little pitch here and say it is something that would be a great holiday gift. And I am going to buy it for a couple of people I know for a, for a variety of different reasons, uh, some of which are going to be related to, I think, our discussion. But one is that, you know, one of the things we're constantly talking about and we're trying to put in front of our audience is information about polarization, about how to bridge divides, uh, but always to have practical tools to do that, right? Like it's not just enough to say, oh, here's the problem, right? And and the solution is change government or whatever, right? I mean, that's not something the person sitting in their car or on the bus or at the gym can do. Right. Uh, you are actually very practical. And I think that's important. And we'll talk about that. Uh, but I do think it's something that if you've got a couple of different people to read in your family who are on different sides of issues, I think there are definitely ways in which the book will help people step back and think what's really going on here? So, so let's get into it. I want to start, you tell a lot of great stories, but I want to start with the story of, I think it's the county fair when you're 16. Yeah. Okay. Take us through this story and tell us about the Kansas City Shuffle, please, because I think this is, this is going to be a great way for us to talk through this and for the audience to kind of understand what you're getting at. Sure. Yeah. I tried to tell you know, stories throughout because as a political scientist, 
having read a lot of political science literature, a lot of which I draw on, I can say of my people that we're incredibly boring as a class. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I don't want to uh, punish people for buying my book. So I want to make it entertaining. So I just reflected on my life and stories and so on. And um, so, uh, you know, I'm at the, the county fair with my girlfriend at the time. I'm 16 years old and it was really cold that night. Uh, and that matters for the story. And, you know, I was trying to win a prize, like a big bear or something, because, you know, other guys, their girls are walking around with big animals that they won. With that's what, and that's what everybody wants at the yeah. fair. Everybody wants that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I weighed maybe 130 pounds at the time. So I was not going to do that thing with the hammer and the, you know, the thing that rings a bell, I'd not have that in me. I never played baseball. I kind of don't throw the way I should. So I, my options were limited and I tried several other, you know, games, could not win any prizes. And then we're walking past this guy at a booth and it's, it's a guess your weight booth. And, you know, it clicks for me. I've got a big sweater on and a shirt under the sweater and a big puffy coat. There's no way he can really guess my weight. I think I can win this one. So I yeah. put down my three bucks and I stand up there and I'm like puffing myself out. And he guesses, you know, maybe 30 pounds higher than my weight. And he's supposed to get within a range of a few pounds. And so then I step on the scale and I'm like, aha, you were wrong. I want my prize. And, you know, I'm smiling at my girlfriend because finally I want a big prize because they've got big prizes hanging in there. And then the dude gives me this tiny little stitched together, like stuffed animal thing that, you know, maybe cost 11 cents to, to buy from China. And I realized I just bought an 11 cent little stuffed animal for $3. And that's when it hit me. The game had never been about guessing my weight. Yeah. Right. The game was convincing me that I knew what the game was. And, exactly. Um, and so later on, as I thought about that, because there's a similarity to politics, I, that's when I discovered, oh, this is an entire con. There's all kinds of cons. And this one, the person conning you wants you to believe that you figured out their con. So they don't yeah. pretend that they're not trying to trick you. It's just you yeah. think that the trickery is over here. And in fact, it's over there. So what I argue in the book is that this is what American politics has become. Yeah. We get so focused on elections, this presidential candidate versus that one, red versus blue. And, and often these people are horrible to each other. And it's a perverse kind of entertainment for us. And, and we think that's what's going on is if one side wins, our liberties destroyed. If the other side wins, then we're gonna be set free. We're bought into that narrative. But the real con, is that people from both sides have been working for decades to take away one of our most fundamental rights, which is the right to govern ourselves and our communities as we see fit. And so that's what I talk about in the book is we're all being victimized by this Kansas City shuffle uh, where we think the game is one way and it's really something else entirely. And I think what I love about that example is it's not, it's, it's, it's not just that you think the game is one way and it's really something else. You feel informed somehow, right? You go into it thinking, oh, I'm, I'm smarter than the average bear here, right? Like right. I look around, I see all these other games, but I can, I, can, I can actually reason my way into how I make out on this. And you're never, ever thinking about the end result. You're thinking about everything at the front end and how, how clever you are and everything. And I think this is this for me, you know, there are so many books out there right now and so many discussions about polarization and toxicity and 
all the things that have caused it, you know, whether it's a change in demographics, whether it's social media, whether it's we've just become worse somehow, right? There's all these different things. Your explanation for what's going on, I think, is unique in that it's saying, hey, there's there's actually something going on, but it's not the thing that you think is going on. And you're so focused on what you think is going on, all these other explanations you are missing the game. You're missing what the carney is doing back here. Right. Um, and you're at the same time being deprived at some level. So, so let's get into that. I think there are a couple of terms we ought to talk about to help make this make sense. You talk a lot about the political class. The political class are the people who really have, they're the equivalent of the carney here, right? That, that's right. That's right. Okay. So who's the political class? Huh, well, so I... I wanted to be careful not to imply that people who are very interested in politics are part of the political class. And so I'm really talking about the people who are kind of steering the operations of politics. I was also careful at the front end to, to suggest, I don't believe they're all conspiring on purpose. It's not like they got together and said, hey, let's right. pull a fast one on um, the voters. But the rules of the game effectively create incentives for them to behave almost as if they are conspiring. So the political class would be everybody from your campaign consultants who make bank no matter who wins or loses, the people who do the media buys, who sell the media, the media operations totally invested in the horse race of politics. Of course, politicians themselves, their advisors, lobbyists, aides, uh, the activists who surround them uh, and demand loyalty to one extreme or the other, people who um, their primary giving is to politics. So that group together is what I call the political class. They're not uh, necessarily with bad intentions. A lot of them right. I think are true believers. Right. But, but the, the way the rules of the game work, each side is now fighting to the death. And each side therefore has an incentive when it, when it seizes temporarily the reins of power to try, first of all, to change the rules so it can keep power longer. And so we've seen, for example, the steady destruction of how Congress operates because both sides, both parties have contributed to destroying every rule in Congress that was meant to keep it a democratic institution, Democrat with small d. Um, yeah. They do that first to try to change the rules to create a permanent advantage. And then they also try to cram through everything their activists want, regardless of whether the American people want it, uh, it using any means possible, usually undemocratic means, because they're so evenly balanced that they can't get what they want through voting and persuasion and horse trading. So what that means is the fight now is so intense that each side has an incentive to put all the power in Washington, DC, right. to avoid subjecting it to democratic votes where we, the people have any kind of say at all. So that's the game in effect. They didn't conspire to make it this way, right. but that's what happens. They keep us distracted with calling each other names and each side declaring if the other side wins, America dies and we get invested okay. in it. You yeah. know, we're usually just holding our noses and picking the least obnoxious choice. But the real thing that's going on is slowly, they're taking all that power that we're supposed to be exercising in our communities and they're making decisions for us. Whether it's where my son, a United States Marine, will be sent uh, without a congressional vote to possibly die advancing aims that are unclear, to whether my local library can restrict access to pornography. We, the people, don't have a vote at any point 
in those processes from the biggest to the smallest. And that's not what the founders intended. Absolutely. Yeah. You were talking about what we end up with in terms of that sort of, you know, these are your choices, one or the other. You have a, I thought, really lovely line in here that says it's the candidates vomited up by broken party nomination processes who are polarized, not ordinary Americans, which gets us to a different point. The sort of where human beings like the average American citizen is. And I want to talk about that. But I I really appreciate, I want to say that I your your point about there's not some evil genius back here kind of figuring all this out, right? In the case of the Carney, so maybe this is a place where it's not fair. Like the Carney knows what the Carney's doing. The Carney wants to get your money um, and it's going to figure out a way to distract you and, and get that money from you. Right. It's not the case probably that most people in the political class are actually making those decisions because they want to get your stuff from you, or if it is, it's maybe not conscious in this sense. Um, They are true believers. They're people who believe that what they're doing is for the best. It may be a paternalistic for the best, right? Like the American, the average American can't make decisions because all the polling and survey data shows us that Americans are incoherent in their, I'm giving, right. This is, a, you know, the story um, that they're incoherent in their political beliefs that, you know, they they're not very educated about the way they vote. You know, one one day they'll vote this way and the next day they'll vote that way. So, in fact, these these people are not like devious carnies. Their people are saying, look, I really do care. Maybe they've even convinced themselves, you know, I want to do what the founders wanted. I want to make sure that our country succeeds and I want people to be happy, et cetera, et cetera. But I've got to make decisions for them. That, from your point of view, is wrong because it's not a fair characterization either of the American people or the conclusions we should draw from the data we get from polling. Why is that? Right. So, yeah, it's um, these things feed each other. So I, I take a hard look at the way polls are constructed. And, and I look at, in particular, two national longstanding uh, polling series, one out of the University of Chicago, the, the other out of the University of Michigan. The reason I do that is because, um, and my friends don't like to hear this, On my friends on both sides of the aisle, they don't like to hear this, but most of the polling that we see in the news, in our you know news feeds, email uh, subscriptions, whatever you're doing, is garbage. It's not designed to discern any kind of truth. It's, it was pre-designed to yield the result that the pollsters wanted because they're working for one interest or another and they're using them to persuade you, the marginal voter, to put pressure on your legislator to vote the way these people want. So all that stuff, we, we move out of the way because it's not legitimate in the first place, but there are some legitimate polls. And my fellow political scientists look at those polls and they have a lot of evidence to show that the average American doesn't know what she wants. You ask her one, one year, hey, should we have more welfare or less? Well, she wants more welfare. And then here she is two years later. Hey, should we have more welfare or not? No, it's too much welfare. So political scientists love looking at those examples of people flipping back and forth and saying, average Americans don't know what they want. And then they double down on it. They say, let's test their knowledge of things. So here's this, you know, tell, tell us who's, who's the, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Well, most people don't know. Well, look at that. They don't even know the basics about politics. You know, how many chambers are in Congress? I don't know. Three, one. Look at that. They don't know anything and their opinions keep changing. So we can't trust these people with the kind of power the founders intended. It's such a neat narrative. It fits so closely to what the political class 
beliefs. Yeah, yeah. They think they have the justification. And so what I wanted to look at was, and earnestly, because I didn't know, I wanted to know, are we the people really fit to govern ourselves as the founders intended? Because if we're not, then for all my dislike of the political class, I can't really complain. Maybe they have a point. We can't be trusted. So I spent a lot of time, which I won't be labor here, mostly because I want you to go buy the book. Uh, but I you know, try to make it a fun little walk through how these polls are built, what's going on behind them, what it means when these political scientists take a bunch of answers to questions like, should we have more welfare or are we invested enough in space exploration? And that you answer on a seven point scale and they take all those little you know, numbers between one and seven and crush them down into a number that tells you what your ideology is. I walk through that with examples of um, you know, real life to show that the truth is Americans do have pretty stable preferences about things. It's not that hard to discern them. And they're largely in agreement on things that matter. Um, I don't argue that we should therefore do whatever the majority wants, but I'm trying to show that there's coherency. There's a coherency to the American mind that the political class and political scientists overlook because neither of those groups really wants what the average American wants. Yeah, I, I think that is something that someone listening to this and most of our listeners are people in the business community, there may be small business owners. I think that resonates for them. We hear this all the time, right? That I don't, you know, I read this, I see that we're polarized, that, you know, it's worse than it's ever been. We're going to have another civil war, but I don't feel that way about the people closest to me in my life or most of the people closest to me in my life. There are those people. And, and I think that they, as you describe them are, you know, the ideologues or the ideological partisans, not just people who have different points of view, but they they feel very strongly. They're not the majority of Americans, right. probably, right. even if they may be growing somewhat, but not growing at an alarming rate, it doesn't sound like from what you're looking at. Th- there are those people who are very much at the extremes. And those are the people who seem to be most confident about what they believe. But the average person isn't, isn't in that. And I think, you know, you also do a nice job of saying, well, you know, I realized as I read something that um, the people who are talking about this are wrong, but then I thought to myself, what if I'm wrong too? Like, let me actually go look at this. Uh, I think people will appreciate that as well. I will beg to differ with one um, point you make because I, and the fault is not yours. I, um, I I don't think I was as sharp on this as I should be in the book. And as I've thought about it more, um, I should have sounded more of an alarm bell. I, I do sound some of an alarm bell. So that's the question of how many um, partisan ideologues are actually in America. And, you know, I, partisanship, of course, is one's allegiance to a political party. Ide- ideology is your kind of point of view on how the world should operate and, you know, whether or not people should be forced to comply, all those things. And so the partisan ideologues I talk about, uh, they're dangerous. They don't mean to be most of them, but they're dangerous because the blend of some ideological fervor, some belief, which I have, I'm an ideologue, you know, some belief that by golly, the world should operate this way and people should follow these rules or else everything crumbles. That they mix that together with partisanship, which is by golly, my party is really in favor of the good stuff and the other party is really dangerous for America. When that gets Mm -hmm. mixed, what happens is, you find yourself in the Capitol on January 6th. <laughs> you find your, what happens is you find yourself 
agreeing with whatever your party leaders tell you. And so if and a great example is, you know, when when a Republican was in the White House, Democrats, in my view, were rightly opposed to massive increases in the power of the surveillance state. You know, trying to stop journalists from being spied on, uh, you know, people on the other side of the aisle from being spied on, interdictions, all of it. They were rightly opposed. And then when there are guys in the White House, suddenly Nancy Pelosi becomes the biggest defender of NSA powers. And, and, and people who are partisan ideologues, they do as well. So my point is, sorry to, for digression, but I try to understand how many of them are there. And yeah. the, the data indicates, if you look at things like what people call themselves and uh, how uh, firmly they vote for one part or the other over time, it's around 20%. And so that's not so bad. And if you go back to the 1950s and you do the same kind of look, it's about 12%. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, if we're just increasing from 12% to 20% from 1956, let's say, to 2020, the rate of growth in the kind of people who are really partisan foot soldiers who could, you know, they really do hate the other side, the level of growth is so slow. They're going to be well into the, in, towards the end of the century before it's a majority of Americans, which is still a problem. However, I think there's reason to believe that it hasn't been growing steadily since 1956. It was around 12%-ish all through there, and it's in the 90s that it began to go up. That implies a much faster rate of growth, and that would imply in the next 10 to 12 years, you're looking at a majority of Americans who really are so animated by politics. And so their tells is assisted by the fact that we can tailor our news so easily now, that you have substantial portions of the population that have really come to hate each other. And have really been, they've fallen victim to the Kansas City shuffle. They think the game is beat the other side and then America will be fine. Yeah, the um, whole idea that if you're on the other side, you don't want to have anything to do with that person. You don't want their kids to, you don't want your kids to marry somebody on the other side, et cetera. Um, and I think uh, one thing that I, I liked about the way that you talked about that and the way that you laid that out is this idea that the danger with that isn't that people hold strong ideology. Uh, as you say, you hold strong ideology. I think I hold strong ideology. The danger is that if you get to the point where it is an either or game or an either or context, mm-hmm. the cost of revising your opinions is revising your whole world structure. It's not just, I changed my mind. It is, I have to change what I understand the world to be because this is how it has been framed for me. That's right. That's, uh, yeah, ideology has this kind of constraining function. The benefit of that is it really forces you to think about why you believe what you believe. There's a benefit, I think, to, uh, to examining ideology and saying, well, if I think markets are good, then I guess that extends to a lot of things. Uh, and I better think about uh, other policy positions I have. But then, like you're saying, flip side is if I believe in, you know, freedom of choice and, and I think, well, I I believe that across the board. So I think, you know, school choice is good. People ought to choose what schools they want. Um, Then if suddenly uh, I'm firmly ideologically in the camp of freedom of choice, free markets, and then someone offers earnest data to suggest that charter schools, for example, on average, don't outperform other public schools, the Someone who is simply trying to be a good citizen and arrive at the best solutions for Americans would 
consider the evidence. But mm -hmm. when you're ideologically committed in advance to, well, free markets are always good, then it's going to be harder for you to consider that evidence because it's going to challenge all this other stuff you believe. Yeah. Um, and we see that more and more where it's what Jonathan Haidt talks about in the righteous mind. You're responding in part to what tribe we think the other person is from, the person trying to persuade us. And we're immediately judging what this new bit of information means for what we care about. And then our analytical mind goes into over overtime to pick apart the fact if it, we feel it as a threat. And so that's right. the real danger is that you don't, we don't behave rationally once we've embraced this mix of partisanship and ideology. And there's this urgency to the whole thing, right? Like we can't, we can't stop and say, let's think about it. Let's, you know, we've got something pinging in our, you know, on our phones or somebody's telling us on social media, if we don't do this, you know, um, something really bad's going to happen. Like there's this urgency that you have to act now and you have to sort of clean your life or, you know, um, eradicate all the bad thinking from your life and, you know, not have that person at dinner. Um, not have Thanksgiving dinner with those people yeah. or not talk to the, you know, yeah. whatever it is, the one in six people who no longer talk to somebody in their family anymore. <laughs> Which I, I always think is an excuse to not talk to somebody. Like I can't even right. imagine anything. I feel that I feel strongly about a lot of things, but I also feel strongly politically, but I also feel strongly about the people I love, you know? Right. I, I think that's right. I um, You see that on Twitter. That's something I try to remember too. For a lot of the people I work around in my social milieu, you know, we're on Twitter. And Twitter is just a cesspool, and it's not in any way reflective of most Americans. Most Americans aren't on Twitter, and no. most people on Twitter hardly post anything. And so then what happens is you got somebody who declares, I'm not having Thanksgiving dinner with Uncle Roy because Uncle Roy has terrible views, and then it goes viral, and then all the other people who are so awful that politics matter more to them than like. They chime in with their stories of now I don't talk to Aunt Martha and I don't talk to my mom. My dad was, wouldn't take off his Donald Trump hat. So I've, you know, I'm not going to his funeral. These are horrible people. Yeah. We would think that way. But thank God, they're a very, very, very small minority, but they get yeah. all the attention. And so the, yep. the part of the, the, the shuffle, the Kansas City shuffle is we end up believing that that's most people. And I think where it plays out is the most disturbing evidence I've, I looked at was that Americans have declining trust in one another to vote uh, thoughtfully. They, they believe what's happening is they believe that most other Americans are the way the pundits tell us we are. And I worry mm -hmm. about what that means. If you look at people themselves, they're mostly not hard red or hard blue. They're not that invested in politics. They want to get along. They're willing to give up some of what they would like out of politics to have neighborly relations with one another. But what they're being told relentlessly is that they're the anomaly. And most of their fellow citizens are angry and ready to go to war. And that yeah. changes then how you relate to your fellow man. And over time, that very message of Americans being polarized it drives polarization. Right, right. It's it's self-fulfilling. Uh, yeah. That's exactly. It. Yeah. So I want to, that's, I think everything you're describing sounds to me to be accurate, but it's a little depressing. So I want to get to the solution to this. Um, and, and I don't want to minimize the problem because I think that is a significant problem, but I also 
don't want to minimize the prospect that we can do better. So, you know, you were talking before about the founders and the founders views. And I was in a conversation not that long ago where somebody was talking about the founders views and somebody at the table said, well, they weren't perfect. And, you know, they did this wrong and they did that wrong. And I think often that is a response to what the founders wanted. One of the things I loved is that you talk about the fact that, look, the founders did some bad things. The founders weren't perfect people. Uh, They also did not agree, but here's something else they didn't do. They didn't think people were perfect and they didn't think 250 years on, they weren't sure it was going to last that long, right? Mm -hmm. That we would all be super, super consistent in our political views, that we would be wholly informed about every political issue that there is. I mean, I think they had a rather accurate picture in many ways of the fact that lots of people aren't going to spend their whole lives learning about the ins and outs of government. Right. They, but, but what, what they did envision and what you're talking about and, you know, sort of what the con is here, that what is being stolen by the political class is self-governance. So what does that mean? What does that look like? And how does that relate to how you see the way out of this? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, part of what we have to remember is they, the founders, their worldview was that um, people would govern themselves in their states and in their townships. And I think they did have an expectation that people would be appropriately engaged, but there wasn't a notion that you had to, you had to have a nation of Aristotles because the, the very practice of self-governance is a, a form of education of the citizen. The other thing um, I think we ought to keep in mind is I mean, they, they quickly, they had their own rancor and disputes um, you know, in, the, in Washington, DC from the very beginning. Uh, we have to keep that in mind. Um, there's also the, their political philosophy. It was informed by a, a more um, classical understanding of democracy than we have today. And, and today, our point of view of democracy is it's a kind of math where uh, half of us wants one thing, the other half wants something else. And so let's count up how many are on each side. And 50% plus one, they get what they want. But an o- older sense of democracy, and Jane, Jane Mansbridge has written a lot about this, wonderful um, thinker. An older understanding of democracy is that uh, it's people in a community reasoning together um, until they can arrive at a, a mutually palatable conclusion. And there's a willingness to not have everything you want, um, to not have things run perfectly because your community and your neighbors, your family mean more to you than ideology. Uh, and which is a kind of I- ideology itself, which is community matters more than uh, pure political results. So I think then that if you have that context in mind, get into your actual question versus the one I'm answering, uh, <laughs> there is on the one hand, a much lower demand that citizens read political magazines and you know be up on all the facts. But at the same time, a, a system that was intended for people to be brought in and educated as they go, because they're the ones deciding what the schools are, are gonna teach, uh, what are the standards for teachers, um, how are we gonna deal with um, guns in our communities, right? What are we gonna do about disease? Those are things that, that the assumption was they had no other way to think about it, but the assumption was communities will figure that out and people will reason together and arrive at the what for them are the best solutions when you keep in mind that one of the goals always is comity, not just the best outcome politically. Right, 
Right. Yeah. And, and as it stands now, we, we have plenty of people who are willing to engage in those discussions on Facebook, maybe, or wherever, read some of these things in, you know, day to day and in whatever they're reading online, um, listen and worry about what's happening at the national level. And we're, we all have, you know, scarce time, right? So if we're focused on that, what we're not focused on is this really in a way harder work of looking at your neighbor who maybe you disagree with or who you have to engage with. And the the risks at some level for people are higher because you live next to that person all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that is the hard work that we need to be doing versus you know, I, I had a discussion with somebody at an event once and they said, well, we've got to make sure people are voting this way and that way and whatever. And I thought, you know, that's, it's really easy to go vote. Relatively speaking, it's easy to go vote. I'm not diminishing the challenges that exist in some places, um, but it's it's pretty easy to go vote. It's a lot harder to really engage some of those issues and think about what you really want at the community level and then try and go affect that Uh, than it is to start yelling at Fox or MSNBC, I think. Right. Yeah, there's a cathartic kind of a cheap catharsis that comes from listening to your favorite radio personality on the other side. Um, I think it's ultimately damaging. But part of what's going on here is that as you've had the federal government essentially intrude on more and more decisions, there's less and less at stake in your local and even your state elections. And so people are less inclined to participate, which then becomes part of the justification for the national minded people. Well, people don't care about local politics. You know, they care about, you know, what, what they want DC to solve the problem. And at the same time, you have, if you have federal agencies that intrude more and more on these communities and states, um, they undermine any kind of authority people might exercise at the local level, like if you know, we see this now is a great story that came out of Washington State, which was ground zero for years and years in the '90s, with essentially one judge exercising his own interpretation of federal agency rulings, which were themselves a profound perversion of any kind of legislation offered mm-hmm. by Congress. You have bureaucrats redefining the law, and I cover this all in the book. Is I go into great detail, um, but not in a boring way with how all that happened. And so you end up with communities absolutely destroyed and neighbors hating neighbors throughout the Pacific Northwest and nobody better off. And on top of that, massive fires now. And and, and now uh, um, you see people in those communities beginning to come back together, almost like the, you know, the green coming after, after a big burn, you know, and the, some of the plant life begins to come back. And they're trying to figure out while avoiding federal intervention, can we figure out a way to get along? Can we loggers and we environmentalists figure out how to protect this land and have a livelihood? But what happened before that was massive federal intervention driven by ideologues, these communities at each other's throats. And so mm. that's part of that con as well as federal intervention and the abrogation of local authority means that all our attention is on DC and 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 our the game becomes how do I beat the other side, and rather than yeah. how do I live with my neighbor um, in a good community. Very different, uh, very different plans of attack. I think so. I, I promised you we would not talk about everything in the book because we definitely want people to go out and buy the book. But 
what I definitely want to give you an opportunity to do is, and it's, I want to just remind the listeners that the the subtitle is a blueprint for reclaiming American self-governance. So, um, you know, you think of a blueprint, it's something that's giving you kind of direction on how to build without giving it all away um, and all the spoilers and everything. What's the positive message and the practical thing that the person listening to this, who's, who's in our audience, somebody engaged in their community wants to see improvement. What's the practical, a practical tip for them to help sort this out after, of course, they buy your book because it'll give them more detail. That's right. That's number one. Number one, buy the book. (laughs) Save the countries, buy this book. Uh, I wanted to be careful to not, so many of these books, well-meaning books, the final chapter is some version of, we need someone to wave a magic wand and change people. We need we need Congress to reform itself. Well, that's not going to happen, right? No. We need federalism to happen. Well, it, it's not going to happen on its own. It's not liberty is not self-executing. So, I wanted it to be something that anyone reading the book could just put the book down after, of course, paying for it and then uh, reading it uh, and, and buy copies for their friends. Neighbors. Yeah, right. Exactly. I wanted to be able to put the book down and have something that any person could do. So I talk a little bit about identity. How you know we all have different identities, not in a way that requires mental intervention, but in a, in a natural sense. That you know, when you're you're coaching your 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 child's little league team, you've got the kind of coach identity on, and then when you're at work, you've got the employee identity. We have different identities for different contexts, and part of what we see is that the political class is working overtime to make. Uh, your ideology or your partisanship, your number one identity that then colors everything else. So I talked a little bit about how do we reclaim more American identity. And then the final chapter, I give some things anyone can do, starting with yourself. And so I'll just tell you one, which is very counterintuitive, but I'm convicted it's the number one thing just for life period. And that is love your neighbor. And I talk a little bit about what that means. Um, you know, what love is not a feeling or it's an action feelings could be associated, but what is the action of loving your neighbor? And then I'm trying, I'm basically channeling Tocqueville, right? Because he talks a lot about um, the, the American kind of democracy versus say the French democracy of his age, which was, they could, they could immediately rise up with this fervor and go off to murder one another in Europe because of a kind of shallow national allegiance versus an American democracy, which was rooted in community. And people coming together to solve problems with one another. And so that to me is the first step. The feds, political class have worked over time for decades to destroy any kind of local self-governance. And the only way you get out of that is to begin to knit back together those bonds. And it's unsatisfying to some people because there's no switch that we're going to flip. But I think it's also more honest. We might as well face it. It's always been the case that any great reform begins with the human heart and you only have control over one of those. But what you do with yours can affect what happens to others. And so that's kind of where I, and then I go out from there with other great advice that will change your life, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. You have to buy the book. That's right. You have to buy the book. (laughs) No, I think, I think um, that is both a very practical uh, tip. And I think it's also one that's not easily done in a lot of cases, especially uh, now after the pandemic, when we've all been around our neighbors all the time for, um, but I think it's really important and the the sort of intentionality of that is something we should all be 
pushing ourselves on. Uh, and so, and I also think it's a hopeful message, right? I think it's, it's a good message for the holidays too. So yeah, that's right. See, you're really, you're selling this. I appreciate it. Bringing it back together, bringing <laughs> it all back together. Okay. So we know about the book, obviously, and we'll link in the show notes to that. Uh, if people want to follow your, what you're doing, what you're thinking about generally, where is the best place to get that kind of information? Uh, well, if it's me, Tony, you know, um, you can go to my my website, which is, uh, it's just my name, TonyWoodleaf.com. And that'll have links to all the different publications, uh, op-eds and so on. Also, I write fiction and have a project devoted to trying to help men become better fathers. So you can find all that stuff there. Um, yeah. Uh, but if you're listening to this before December 7th, just wait a little bit because it, it won't be out before then. Um, and then also my organization, State Policy Network, yes. uh, which we you know um, support state-based organizations across the country. And that's spn.org. And you can see a lot about what we're up to. And we're also going to be going through a web design, which will take a little bit longer. And we're also building out a component where we want to bring in interesting voices who care about federalism, local self-governance, um, we don't want to have a strong ideological filter. We want interesting people thinking about the kinds of questions that we got to start considering, like how do we get legislators to begin exercising oversight again, or what are the upsides and downsides of states intervening in local decisions? And just want to make it a big tent place, talk about this stuff so we can get our own thoughts together as a as people who care about restoring, you know, a constitutional balance of power in, in America. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we appreciate it, Tony. And as I say, we will link to all of these things in the show notes so everybody can check it out. I also appreciate that you didn't say follow me on Twitter after we just had a discussion about the problems with Twitter, but I know you can be followed on Twitter too. <laughs> I was tempted, but I, I, I stayed strong. <laughs> Thanks very much. All right. Bye, y'all. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And we will link in the show notes, as I mentioned, to the book into Tony's website so you can learn more about Tony and his work. What I will take away from this conversation, I think, is, I suppose, some caution. And that is, in terms of Tony's argument about how we got to this point, to recognize that there is an incentive for some people to see us divided, to see us polarized, to see us being intransigent in our beliefs and not being willing to be reasonable with one another and to listen and change our opinions. And that's an important thing to keep in mind because it requires that as I hear things or see things in the news or, you know, hear stories about how we are so divided, it, it requires that I stop and take a moment to think about in whose interest is it that I feel that way or that I hear that message. And how much energy do I want to put into that message, knowing more about that message, um, being agitated, I suppose, about that kind of polarization and about that kind of disagreement versus putting that energy into something that Tony suggested, which is to love my neighbor uh, and to kind of change my own heart, I guess. I think that's something that will stick with me. It's something that I'm going to ponder. And I hope, I hope I will learn from it. I hope you found something valuable in the conversation as well. And if you did, I really would appreciate it if you would take just a minute to rate and review the podcast 
because that really does make a difference in other people knowing about the podcast and being able to join the conversation with us. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.